The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of that song, that the Son of God, the perfect and holy and pure and blameless Son of God, gave his life for sinners like us. Lord, we thank you for this weekend. We celebrate your death and resurrection. We thank you for this service where we think about the suffering that Christ endured. Lord, I pray that as I speak, my words would fall to the floor, but your word would be clear. I pray that the truth of the gospel would permeate even hardened hearts. Lord, that your spirit would work and do everything that I can't do. Lord, I thank you for your love for a sinner like me. And God, I pray that today we would all once again be reminded of and glory in the love that the Father had on sinners like us. We thank you. We love you. We pray for your glory in the service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming today. I know Easter weekend is a wonderful time. And when we think about what we do at Easter, we often think about celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And certainly on Good Friday... It is good because we have the resurrection of Christ to look forward to. And Easter Sunday, we glory in the resurrection, that Jesus is alive again. But I'm grateful that you've come to a service where you know, or at least I hope you know, that we're going to be leaning in to the death of Christ, to the cross of Christ, to the sufferings of Christ. War is an unpleasant thing. And that may be the understatement of the century. The thought of a physical enemy whose goal it is to take your stuff, your land, and probably your life is a terrifying thought. And if the thought itself is horrible, how much more terrible the reality? Can you imagine what it would have been like for people who left their homes purposely marching toward a war? knowing that there was an enemy, a real enemy, that wanted to kill them, take their lives. That'd be a terrifying thing. We should be grateful that in North America, our lives are almost entirely sheltered from the wars that rage overseas. We are a fortunate people. It is an awesome thing to live in a country where everybody says sorry all the time. And where all it takes to bring us all together is a gold medal hockey match against the Americans. Our whole Canada, our whole country of Canada is united for that cause. But we must not mistake peace in Canada for peace with God. Back in the Old Testament, God had men that were called prophets that he would communicate through. It was the prophet's duty to bring messages from God that God wanted to give to the people. And so there were, there were many prophets in the Old Testament. Many times God wanted to communicate something to the people. He did this always through prophets. Um, Jeremiah was one of these men. And he was called to prophecy against Israel during a time where everything seemed like it was all right. The country was prosperous. There was no enemies in their immediate vision. Right? Everybody was having a great time. But the problem was, Israel was a land that was drifting farther and farther away from God, more and more into disobedience against God. And not only that, the prophets, or many of the prophets that were supposed to be warning Israel and calling them back to God, 
weren't doing their job, right? Instead of calling them back to God, they were lying to them. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, he says that they, speaking of the prophets, whose job it was to call people back to God, says they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The idea of them healing the hurt of the people slightly is superficially. Jeremiah was there and he was sounding the alarm because people needed to wake up. They needed to wake up to their sin. They needed to realize that there wasn't peace between them and God. And yet, as much as Jeremiah shouted and sounded the alarm, these prophets were lulling the people back to sleep. Uh... A little while ago in our house, the fire alarm went off. And it's a pretty normal thing because when we're cooking, often the fire alarm goes off. <laughs> the kids have learned not to pay attention to the fire alarm, right? Now, it's probably not a good thing. Um, but, but they know, oh, it just means that dinner's probably ready. <laughs> but it's a different thing when the fire alarm goes off and you're fast asleep. And you can imagine kids waking up in the middle of the night and just being terrified because there's this crazy loud sound in their bedroom and a blinking light shouting at them, warning them. Now, on occasion that happens because we're cooking something at night when they're asleep. These are too many secrets I think I'm sharing. And, and we, you know, parents, you rush into the room and you tell your kids, hey, you know, first you turn off the fire alarm and then it doesn't work and so you take it out and you, you try and figure out how to turn it off and eventually you stomp on it. And, and you, you, once the alarm is off, you tell the kids, hey kids, it's, it's okay. There's no fire. You're okay. Go back to sleep. You know, you tuck them in. And here's Jeremiah. And he's this fire alarm in Israel. He's shouting to them, there is no peace. You must repent. You're drifting from God. You're sinning against God. And all of the rest of the prophets are saying, hush, hush. It's okay. They actually took their fire alarm and threw him in a pit. That's where Jeremiah ended up. It's a dangerous thing when we think there is peace and there is not. And the peace and the prosperity, or at least the perceived peace, that Israel experienced had caused them to be okay with the fact that their relationship with God wasn't okay. And I'm just concerned that we can become the same way as they were. That we can just assume that because we live in a country where everything's great and everyone says sorry and, and there's no obvious conflict, that we become accustomed to there being this peace and we're not really worried about this peace. We're not concerned about our relationship with God. I'm not sure what you expected when you came to a Good Friday service. Um, it's the service where Christians celebrate the crucifixion of our leader. That is an odd thing. It is an odd thing that Christians wear crosses across their neck or put them on their churches. It's a strange thing that we take this event where they tortured and killed the Messiah that was sent to save them, and we celebrate it. It's odd that we just sang a song called The Beautiful, Terrible Cross. But there is a reason for the strangeness. Though the cross demonstrates the height of man's sinfulness, 
it also demonstrates the depth of God's love. And because I love Jesus, and I know how desperately I need the gospel to have peace with God, I want to sound the alarm once again today. I want to show you how we lost our peace with God and what God did to get it back. So let's look at the Bible. Let's look at how we lost our peace with God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, it began in a garden, and it began with peace. God created Adam and Eve in his own image to be in relationship with him forever. And he called his creation very good. For a brief time, Adam and Eve experienced perfect, unhindered intimacy between themselves and God. Can you imagine such a thing? The answer is no. Honestly, we cannot even fathom what it would be like to walk in the garden with God. And yet that's what Adam and Eve experienced. There was perfect peace. Then the serpent came and changed everything. He convinced Eve that God was not fully good. And she ate from the one tree in the entire earth that God had forbidden. At her bidding, Adam followed suit. And immediately, the peace was gone. Adam hid from God. He blamed Eve for his sin, and then he blamed God for giving him Eve. Death was introduced into God's perfect world, and the corruption of the curse knew no limits. Everything that God had created was now cursed because of man's sin. There was no peace anywhere. The perfect relationship between God and man was severed when Adam and Eve turned their back against God in disobedience and made God their enemy. The peace that was lost was the peace between God and man, but that loss affected everything else. And in the story of the fall of mankind, there was only one small glimmer of hope. And that is the promise that God makes to Adam and Eve. God promises that one day he would send a son who would crush the head of the serpent. Years later, Eve would give birth to two boys, Cain and Abel. The boys grew up together. They played together. They worked together. They talked together. They had fun together. They were in a world where there was literally no one else to play with. (laughs) And so, you can imagine how close they were. And then one day, in a fit of rage and jealousy, Cain beat his little brother Abel to death. Because there's no peace. Fast forward 1,500 years. This is the description that the Bible gives of mankind at that time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. That's the state of mankind. And so God sends a flood to destroy the earth and saves only Noah and his family. Why? Because there is no peace between God and man. If you have your Bibles, you know that you are in Genesis chapter 6. You're a couple pages in. And there's a whole lot of Bible left before we get to the New Testament, right? All of these pages, every line, is a reminder of the separation that exists between God and mankind. 
We could go through the whole story bit by bit, piece by piece, right? God saves his people. He calls the people out for himself. He teaches them his, his law. He gives them his will for them. And they promise to keep it, and then they rebel against it. And it happens over and over and over again. They break every law in every way imaginable. They complain, they whine, they fight. They fail. There is no peace with God. After Moses, Joshua dies. Joshua leads, then he dies, and judges lead up to uh, rise up to lead the people of Israel. And as the judges rise up, there's you know even small glimmers of hope as the people of God repent of their sin and, and turn back to Him, and God delivers them. But you know the cycle; it happens time and time again. That after they're delivered, they go right back to the sin that brought them into bondage, over and over again. And they call out, and God delivers them, and then they go back to that sin. The judges were not the answer. And so, why not try kings? First king was kind of a mess. But then you have the greatest king that Israel ever saw apart from Christ. That king is King David. He was a murderer, an adulterer, and a terrible father. And if he is the best king, that gives you an idea of what the other kings were like. There is no peace between God and man. Prophets rise up and they do their jobs. They try to warn the people of Israel. Jeremiah was one of them, right? Isaiah was another. In Isaiah 48, 22, he said, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Yet they didn't listen. Israel disregarded all of the warnings time and time again. And they spent the better part of the 700 years before Jesus was born enslaved to various nations. No peace at all, not for them, not between God and man. The history of mankind is a rather bleak one. But do you remember the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve about a son who would come and crush the head of a serpent? Do you know that that promise was reiterated? In the midst of all this sin and all of the chaos and all the depravity, God continually reminded his people that he would send a son a child who would come and eventually he would deliver his people from their sins. It was in the prophets. They said it time and time again. It was in the, the feasts. It was in the sacrifices. It, all of the Old Testament tells the story of man's sin. And yet all of the Old Testament also points forward to a day when this deliverer would one day come. That is what the Bible does. It points forward to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, here's one of the prophets. This is what Isaiah said. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There would be a child that would be born and he would come, and in some way he would be able to bring the peace that was never there. That was never possible. Before we move on to the good part, right? before we talk about how we get that peace, can we be really honest about something? There is no peace between God and man still today. I mean, I mean, mankind as a whole is not at peace with our Creator. It is very possible for us to become so accustomed 
to the hostility that exists between ourselves and God that we don't see the problem. We no longer look to God or look at, look at our lives and think, man, the greatest problem in my life is that I'm just like the Israelites. I have hostility between me and God. We don't see it because we're so used to it. The truth is, sin always separates us from God. It does still today. We are no better than Israel on her best day. As individuals, we are guilty of sinning against a holy God who is the judge of all people. And I'm begging you today to see this as a problem. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, we are the enemies of God. Without Jesus, we are condemned already, guilty and deserving of death, eternal death. Jesus promised that no man will come to the Father except through him. And so we must see this as a problem. In fact, the greatest problem that any of us will ever face is the problem of our broken relationship with God. Can I say that one more time? The greatest problem that any of us will ever face is the problem of our broken relationship with God. So what did God do to get it back? You can turn to Luke chapter 1. God sent a forerunner before Jesus came. His name was John, John the Baptist. Before John was born, he spoke to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Zechariah finally figured out God's program here. And he prays an amazing prayer at the end of Luke chapter 1. And when he's speaking about what the Messiah would do, this is what he said. Luke chapter 1 verse 77. He said that the Messiah would give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you see what he's saying there? That the Savior would come with the message of salvation for his people. The message that their sins can be forgiven. That God has sent mercy by sending his Son. And that his Son would come to those in darkness and guide our feet into the way of peace. If you recognize that your greatest problem is a broken relationship with God, that is some awesome news. That someone has come to take us out of that darkness and show us a way to peace with God. Soon after Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds and they glorified God for the peace that the Savior would bring. Finally, the Savior of the world has come. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, the people expected that God would just bring peace in no time. Right? They would make him king, he would conquer everyone else, and he would just force peace on all people. But Jesus repeatedly told his followers that he first had to go to the cross. See, Jesus understood that the only way to peace with God, between God and man, was by him going to the cross. He understood something we did not see. And so what I want to do with some the rest of our time this morning is I want to show you what God did to bring us peace. 
I want to read for you portions of the passions of the passion of Christ, the story of Christ going to the cross for our sin. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I shall pray. Verse 35. And he went forward a little, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. And he's in agony. He's sweating drops of blood. And he prays to God. God, take this cup away from me. Do you ever wonder what was in that cup? What was it that was so awful that made Jesus, the Son of God, fall on his knees and sweat drops of blood and pray that God would somehow, if there was any way, take away the cup? The cup that he's speaking about was the sins of mankind and the wrath that we justly deserved. The wrath of all of our sin was in that cup, and Jesus would soon be be drinking it. He said, God, if there's another way, if there's another way to bring peace between God and man, then take this way away. I don't want this way. But not my will, thine be done. Three more times, Jesus would pour out his soul before his father. Three times, Jesus would submit himself to the father's will. Moments later, Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss. And he was arrested by the temple guards. He would stand at a mock trial at Anna's house, the father-in-law of the high priest. And then again at another trial at Caiaphas's house, who was the high priest. And here are a few of the highlights from those scenes. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. The men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophecy, who is it that smote thee? Mark chapter 14, 55. The chief priests and all the council sought for a witness against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witnesses agreed not together. Verse 60. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say against thee? But he, Jesus, held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed, or the Son of God, the Son of the Almighty? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What? Need we any further witnesses? You have heard the the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. 
And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophecy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. As, as all this is going on, as these trials take place, Peter is busy denying any connection to Jesus. You've got the wrong guy. I don't know him. You know, in the story, Peter is us. Next, they brought him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, who didn't want to deal with him. So he sent him to King Herod, who also was kind of bored, didn't want to deal with him, and he sent him back to Pontius Pilate. So now Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate has determined, after speaking with Jesus, that Jesus is fully innocent. No crime committed. But rather than letting Jesus go, this is what he said. John chapter 18, verse 38. He, Pilate, went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find in him no fault at all. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. John 19, verse 1. Pilate therefore took Jesus, and he scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. And Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto him, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take you him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. Verse 14. It was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, they crucified him. And the malefactors, or the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on his left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood, beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save yourself. Matthew 27, verse 44. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, 
cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. They took Jesus' body down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea convinced Pilate to allow him to bury Jesus in his own tomb. And so he and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus Jesus, and anointed it with spices and oil. And they wrapped his body in white linen and laid it in the tomb. Pilate, at the behest of the Jews, sealed the tomb and set a guard. And we know how well they did. (laughs) I hope as we read those verses, you realized that Jesus died a violent death. That Jesus was tortured to death. That he came lived a perfect and sinless life, did nothing wrong to anybody, loved everybody perfectly, completely, and instead of thanking him and making him king, mankind took him and put him on a cross. This is the ultimate picture of our sin. God comes to us, and rather than welcoming him and glorifying him as he deserves, we kill him in the worst way possible. This is our sin. There is no peace between God and man. And yet, he's come to die so that he could bring us that peace back. How crazy is that? That the most violent death that mankind could think to inflict on Jesus, that's what we did. And yet, it's through that death, through that torture, through the blood that Jesus shed, that there can be once again peace between God and man. We began this morning with Adam's sin. Adam's sin destroyed the peace and the intimacy that once existed. We are now children of Adam, sinners by nature and sinners by choice. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you know what that verse, it's, it's so wonderful because it makes it abundantly clear that if you are one of the all mentioned there, which you are, then you're dead in Adam. You, you have his nature, you're a sinner by nature and by choice. As in Adam, all are dead. All are separated from God. There is no peace between any person and God naturally. But then it says, all those in Christ shall be made alive. And that's a glorious thing. There is nothing more important in your life than being made at peace with your maker. But there is only one way to make peace with God. 
The last thing I want to do on this Good Friday service is to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so if you are here this morning and you don't understand yourself to be a sinner at enmity with God, an enemy of God, if you think that just because you are a human being who is doing their best, that somehow that makes you right with God, I've got to tell you, it doesn't. There's no peace. We are all sinners. But the Bible is so abundantly clear that Jesus, that God in his love for us, wouldn't allow that relationship to be severed eternally. That he saw our helplessness and our hopelessness and he sent I mean, he'd already devised a plan before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to take the punishment that you deserved. Right? The judge came off the throne and died for the criminal so that we could be made right. We could be justified. That word justified, it's an amazing word. Justified is to be declared righteous before God. How does any person that's lived the way we've lived and had the thoughts that we've had ever be declared righteous before a holy God? And the answer is, only if the righteousness is not our own. He takes our sin on Himself. The cup of wrath that we deserved is poured on Him. And we receive His perfect righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified... By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace peace available, but it's only through Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, reconcile, make right, fix the relationship, bridge the gap. By Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Right? He came to bring us peace. And there is peace available at the cross. For every believer in Christ, Jesus is our peace. But I can't say peace, peace when there is no peace. And there is no peace outside of knowing Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're saved, can we leave today with a renewed gratitude for what Christ has done for us? Can we leave today remembering that he suffered greatly so that we could be made right with him, so that we could be in relationship with him, not only here on earth, but for eternity, to be with him, to be an heir of Christ, Forever. We, as believers, should be grateful that He came to us. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you are saved, you don't know if this death that Jesus died was for you, if you've never repented of your sin and asked Him to save you, can I tell you something? Today can be the day that you find peace with God. That's a crazy thought, but today can be the day that you are right with your maker. There is nothing better that you can do. There's more 
no more important decision that you can make than to make the decision to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. Right? Recognize that you're not enough, that you're not good enough, and come to Him with completely empty hands. Come to the foot of the cross. See Jesus dying for your sin. And trust Him to save you. That is the only hope that any of us have. But the wonderful thing about it is Jesus, when He died, He said, It is finished. There is no other hope that we need. He has done it all for us. And so praise the Lord. Thank you so much for being here for this Good Friday service. I pray that you would think about the cross as you leave today. Let's pray.